Here we are, May the 15th, 2011, lecture discussion number 35 on the book of Romans. And yes, uh, you heard that right. It is lecture discussion number 35 on the book of Romans. At long last, we have returned to Romans. That's where we are today. So feel free to burst into song or skip around through the aisles. Stay in the aisles if you can. And all the things you usually do that frighten off the one visitor that we get. Um, but yes, we're back to uh, Romans finally after all these, uh, after a few months, after we left behind Judges 19, 20, and 21, and 1 Samuel 11. And um, as per normal, whenever I finish a series, regardless of what it is, what have I done? I have left much behind. There are many things for you to solve on your own. Um, two or three thousand, if you uh, if you added probably correctly in Judges 19, 20, and 21, and that's not too bad, all things considered. I, I'm actually pretty happy with my Judges 19, 20, and 21 series. Uh, I think I got as much of it out as I possibly could, and again, I'm pretty proud of myself and pleased, and I'm sorry about you. And, and you know I'm not really sorry about you, aren't I? But uh, seriously, I am, I am pretty satisfied that I got as far as I did. Anyway, we are officially resuming Romans today, sort of. Let me say sort of. I am going to go back a little bit. I have to, and you'll understand why in a few minutes. It's an Internet problem that we have, and I'm going to try to solve it. But I am going to go back today, and I'm going to solve as well, or try to, the, uh, the issue of the oxen that was tore apart by Saul uh, what that mystery is and what it really means and why he did what he did. Uh, at least I'm going to give you the information you need to solve it yourself. And I, actually, I will uh, pretty much lay it out for you, but uh, it, it's kind of funny. I, I have a habit, as you know, I was talking to Dave about this yesterday. Uh, I watch these things on the Internet a little bit to see who's, who's listening to what to try to give me an idea. Um, and I did one called the... Um, I made the comment in one of them that the rapture is assigned to the Jews in the tribulation. I'm sorry, I said that badly. I said the, um, this is what I said. Let's see if I can remember what I said. It was a long time ago. What was it, 2007 or 8? Probably, yeah. I said this. I said Lot's wife being covered with salt is a sign to the nation of Israel during the tribulation or just prior to the tribulation Actually, obviously, prior to the tribulation, but they, they seem to recognize what happened in the tribulation. And so that's why it becomes thought of as maybe a tribulational sign. But in all likelihood, it's prior to the tribulation. So they are supposed to see Lot's wife as a sign of something. That's why he says to them, remember Lot's wife. Well, I do this whole sermon that Dave titles, uh, Lot's wife uh, is the sign of the rapture. And people are just going crazy. They're it's one of our one of our, the biggest ones that we have, and I thought, well, I'll listen to it. This guy might this guy might be good. I got to hear what he has to say. So I listened to the whole thing, and I don't hear anything in there about Lot's wife being a sign of the rapture of the church. And I and so I asked Dave, did I ever even say that? He said, yeah, you kind of threw away about a two second line, but but he decided to make the, that the title of it. But that's pretty typical of me. It really is. I want you to think about it. What could Lot's wife be assigned to the Jews of in the tribulation? What could she be? 
she's covered and preserved in salt, right? Anyway, uh, I'm doing a little bit of that today. I'm going to I'm going to do the same thing with the oxen, except this time I'm really going to mean it. I mean, I'm going to do it on purpose. So uh, if you're wondering why he tore an oxen up, how would you solve that? Why didn't he tear up a donkey? Why didn't he tear up a, a, a building? You know, he could have gone into the demolition business or something. He had, he had a supernatural event. He could have tore up a lion like Samson. He could have done anything. But he does a, a pair, an oxen set, essentially. Why? How does that fit? And that's called the mystery of the oxen. And, and um, I'll do my best, as I said, to give you what you need to solve it. Okay. Do you remember where we left off on February the 27th? I had to look it up. February the 27th is a, a lecture discussion number 34 on the Book of Romans. And that's right, where, where we were is the comparison between King Saul and King David, uh, how they fit together. And thereby, the way is your solution to what? The oxen. Very good. All i got to do. Yeah, I have this amazing comparison that happens between Saul and David. And we begin to compare it uh, with respect to the witch of Endor and the murder of Uriah and the assault of the taking of Bathsheba. So there's a comparison between the witch of Endor and the taking of Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah. And, uh, and that, of course, is what solves Romans 3, 9 through 18. Or why did David write those words that then the Apostle Paul quotes so extensively? And, and you should remember those, I hope, by now. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who does good, no, not one. Paul puts that there. David writes those words. They're part of his confession for what he did to Bathsheba and Uriah. And Paul puts them there as proof that there is only salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That's how it all fits together. And um, and uh, obviously, Romans 3, 9 through 18, couples with Romans 1 through 17, or 1, 17, the just shall live by faith. And I hope you got that. I'll just run by it really fast. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who does good, no, not one, because... The just shall live by faith. There is none who understands. There are, uh, they have all turned aside. Destruction and misery are their ways. Therefore, the saved shall have eternal life given to them by grace. That's the only possible solution. Does that make sense? If there is none who understands and none who does good, there's no possibility that anyone can be saved by any other means than by faith. And grace through in, in the in person of Jesus Christ. And that's how those fit together. And the Apostle Paul, who was previously the Pharisee Saul, the murderer of women and children. And he was a murderer of women and children. He was trying to exterminate all Christian Jews. That's what his job was. He was very good at it. Why, however, have I said to you, the murderer of women and children? Because I'm trying to make you do what? Compare him to other murderers of women and children. Who have we covered recently? Agag, who was cut to pieces by Samuel. Anyway, 
the Apostle Paul, the Pharisee Saul, murderer of women and children, understood fully how it was, how it came to be, that one such as himself was saved, that got saved. He knew that it was not because of anything he had done. It couldn't be. He could not possibly be saved by something he had done. He had done horrible things. And so he understood very well that salvation is by grace alone, through faith in Jesus Christ alone. There is no other possibility that salvation can be any other way. And Pharisee Saul slash Apostle Paul got that perfectly, and King Saul got that as well, and King David got that as well. They all three understood it. They all three had a mirror in their house, and they all understood who they were. I was, before I came to church tonight, I spent a little time uh, listening or looking at a sermon that is very popular, extremely popular. There are probably thousands of downloads on this sermon already, if not tens of thousands. And I was talking to Lori about it on the way. It stuns me, just absolutely stuns me. Uh, It is the position that God is not only the creator of evil, but he delights in creating evil and he is glad for the viciousness of evil. And and it's, they want that to be so true. Where it comes from, I, I don't know. I don't know how to respond to it. How, how quickly I could go through the arguments that decimate that position. Bang, 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 bang. I just do it in my head so fast, and I'm astonished that anyone could believe that, or would want to believe it. First off, God, Isaiah 520, do not call him evil. Do not call that which is good evil. Do not call that which is evil good. You have the parable of the talents where Christ says he's in the position there of God as he is God. And he says to the one that hid the talent underneath, you know, buried it. He said, look, you think I'm evil. And the implication there in that language, in that context is, is that how dare you think that I'm evil? That I am the author of evil. Not only does it, uh, if you think God delights in vicious evil and wickedness, He delighted in making it. You'd have to think that, wouldn't you? Because He said it. When did you? When did He create evil? Did He create? When did it happen? Did He? Because He said when He creates, right, that it is good. So therefore, you make evil good. Now you're in conflict with Isaiah five twenty. Anyway, it goes on and on and on. It stuns me. It just stuns me to see people think that's a good idea, and and try to defend it. But they do. What a horrible thing. We worship a, a, a God who delights in evil. That's, that's what you want. That's what you think the Bible said. I shouldn't even have got off on it, but sorry. Not really. Okay. Jesus Christ, God, let me just say this, comes, it comes and to seek and save who? the miserable, the lost. Does that sound like the creator of evil to you? No. Do they not understand that Jesus Christ is God? Am I starting to rant here? Do they not look at what he did in the New Testament and see all that mercy? Does he, do they not see the crucifixion? Do they not see any of that? And they think this is the person who does this is the creator of the very evil that he is defeating? And they say this, by the way, they'll say this. The reason that you, um, and they're talking about me, and perhaps you, I hope you, 
The reason that people like me have a view that opposes that is because I'm trying to put myself in the position of God and I want God to be anthropomorphizing him. I want God to be like me. What's my response to that? Yeah, I mean, my goodness. I do not want God to be like me at all. I'm hoping in every possible fiber I can that he is not anything like me, and I know he's not. And I look at them and I say, well, you're evil, and you believe God is the author of evil, so you're doing the exact same thing you're accusing me of. You're anxious for God to be the author of evil because you yourself are an author of evil in your own life. This, by the way, is a misunderstanding completely. This is not understanding Genesis 15, not understanding Matthew 4, not understanding uh, Matthew 26. Uh, uh, um, I can't I can't come up with a verse off that off my but Gethsemane, not understanding how Gethsemane fits with Genesis 15 and how it fits with Matthew 4. <sighs> okay. Where was I? I am supposed to be a professional. Okay. Saul knew that a loving, merciful God saved a despicable murderer like himself. King Saul knew that too. King David knew that God had to be love and mercy. Has to be good. And you hear my rules all the time. Never have an interpretation of Scripture where God is not good. Never. To do so puts you in violation. He'll warn you in the parable of talents. If you say that God is not pure, perfect good, you will end up in condemnation. And by the way, those of those who uh, think that God is the author of evil will say the people who don't believe God is the author of evil are condemned. I don't say that. I am sure that the people who believe that God is the author of evil are just miserably deluded. They do not think they're unsaved. What a a horror of a doctrine. And by the way, they'll say that. They'll say to you that this is a horror of a doctrine. And anytime you start out by calling your doctrine a horror, you might be suspicious of it. Maybe you didn't quite get it. Anyway, okay, I'm almost done with that. Maybe. But it bugged me. It bugged me to see the response to it. Okay. Anyway, Paul, the Apostle Saul, uh, Paul, the uh, Pharisee Saul, King Saul, King David, they knew. They had mirrors. They had dark glass. They had pools of water that were still. They had a really good idea of what they were like. Self-evaluation was on the money. And that is, by the way, why Paul, inspired and led by the Holy Spirit, included David's words at Romans chapter 3. Now, unfortunately, due to technical problems, the lecture of February 27, 2011, uh, Romans number 34, uh, was lost. It's mostly inaudible. Uh, we had a failure, uh, technically, and uh, you can hardly hear. It's very difficult to hear it and to discern what is said, especially the King Saul, King David comparison section, and that is a shame. It's therefore imperative um, to re-enter that information into the record, and this would be the place to do it. 
that happened in lecture 34, and so I need to do it here in lecture 35. So I have to put it back into the record, so to speak, for the benefit of those who receive CDs and those who follow along on the Internet. But first, um, I'm going to give you, the live audience, um, today's thesis statement. Since uh, you all heard lecture number 34, every single one of you, and you all memorized it. Which is really impressive. And all, everybody say yes so that the people on the internet are just overwhelmed by you. They don't believe a minute of it, but who knows? Maybe one will. Um, But anyway, um, I'm going to give you today's thesis statement since I don't want to uh, completely wipe you out. and as I said, you've already heard all of this, and so uh, you're going to be bored beyond the acceptable cliffside parameters. I, I, if you're this much bored, I'm, I'm okay with that. But when, you, when it starts getting up here, even I have my issues, and so that's what's going to happen to you when I repeat this. So I'm going to give you the thesis of today's sermons, uh, today's sermon, I'm sorry, or today's lecture, and then, um, and then I'm going to launch into this repeat of this information. Uh, and so during that, after you get the thesis, uh, feel free to wander around and go outside and uh, and get ice cream for everyone and take a nap and answer your cell phones and play video games. In other words, behave normally. And everything will be the same. Okay, turn to Romans 3, thank you for laughing, 18 through 19. And let's read this together, Romans 3, 18 and 19. And this is the thesis statement. Actually, we'll go 20 as well. There is no fear of God before their eyes. David wrote that. Paul put it in. Or Solomon or Isaiah. I'm I'm not positive which one wrote it, but it's uh, an amalgamation of all of those. It's a, a blending, if you will. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know. Look at that. Now we know. That whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth might be stopped, or may be stopped. Let me translate that. Chronister's official translation, uh, it's, uh, it should be on sale any minute. Okay, it won't. There's no official translation. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that everyone will be shut up. That's what's happening. And all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For the law is the knowledge of sin. And now I hope you understand why Edgar Andrews is going to come into play here very soon. Hopefully next week. Maybe not. We'll see when the books come. So hopefully, just listening to that, you've already begun to wrestle with the obvious questions. It's very important to note, as I just started to say, this is a blended quote of David, Solomon, and Isaiah that begins with, there is none righteous, no, not one. And it ends with, there is no fear of God before their eyes. And notice the context up above that. There is none who does good. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God. I had a partner, I don't know if he ever listens to me, but he used to go around all the time, a business partner. We we were parasites during the housing crisis crunch, and uh, we'd go around and repaint and trim things out and fix stuff as much as we could. 
And that was what he would say all the time as he went through his life. He said, where is the fear of God? Why isn't there any fear of God? Why isn't there any fear of God in me? He would ask that about himself. But he certainly would ask it of everyone else. And he just couldn't understand why no one was afraid. No one thought that this was all going to be brought to account. That people thought they got away with things. People thought they had secrets. We all do that. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So these people whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness, who are murderers, they don't know the ways of peace. They have no fear of God. So why not? Why don't they fear God? Who are these people? How did they get this way? Who wrote this? Who quoted it? Let me put it that way better. Paul quoted it. Why did he pick it? Holy Spirit picked it for him, but why did he think he was picking it? How did these people get this way? Why did they get this way? What is their purpose? What is their plan? Why are they cursing? Why are they bitter? And then the obvious question, right? Who are they cursing? What is causing this eager eagerness that they have to kill? Their feet are swift. They shed blood. They can't wait to do it. They're in a hurry to do it. Why Why are they doing that? What is the meaning of their throat is an open tomb? I'll help you with that one. Uh, um, an open tomb has what inside of it? It has a dead body. And if it doesn't have a covering over it, it doesn't have a rock in front of it, if the mouth of the tomb is not closed, then what do you get when you walk by? You get the stench that comes out of the mouth, right? So their mouth is an open tomb. It has the stench of death in it. How do they get like this? And they have no fear of God. They are certain that God is what? Powerless. And they have no awe of Him, and they have no respect for Him, and they have no sense of dread. And they do not believe that He is omniscient either, by the way. They don't believe that He knows all things. That's why it's so important to say of Christ, He knows all things. If you say of Christ, He knows all things, then you realize that Christ is the is God in the flesh. And now you can figure out the characteristics of God, can't you? You can look at the person of Christ, who is God, and you can decide something that's really easy to decide right off the bat, can't you? You can decide, well, if He's the author of evil. you got to do is look at His life. Sorry, I digressed again, didn't I? But whoever it is that is described in this section 13 through 18, they have no fear of God. And that's an interesting place to be. What do you suppose is the anatomy, the process, the steps that leads to getting you into that place, into that condition? And consider that for a moment, because that's the thesis statement, while I very quickly repeat that part of Lecture 34 that was lost in the technical abyss. Now, you may have to listen to it if you want to know about the oxen. Otherwise, feel free. I will not be offended if you completely... Uh, go into a, a comatotic uh, state. Is that a word? Um, no. Did I make? I like it though. Can I call it a word? Sure. Yes. Yeah, coma. What, what did I say? I gotta. I gotta listen to this and write it down. What was I trying to say? No, that's not it. 
That's what came out, but that's not what I was trying to say. Catatonic, that's what I was trying to say. So comatonic, and that's just coma and catatonic put together. I think that's brilliant. That's a, I've got to write that down. I will use it again. I will keep using it until people think it's a word. That shouldn't take long in the, with the condition of our, uh, never mind. <laughs> but I do intend to use it. You know, not every day I, somebody will claim they invented the word. People were stealing my stuff. I'm waiting for a particular well-known commentator to say sorry, not really fake sorry, because he stole all the rest of my stuff. I'm just waiting. Then I'm going to say, hey, what are you doing? Okay. Again, think about the anatomy of this kind of person and, and as I go on. And again, don't, I will not be offended if you fade out at all, because this is that place. Who am I doing this for? I'm doing for the internet folks and the CD folks that did not get this in record. Uh, it, it, it bears repeating um, because of the necessity to understand the connectivity of King Saul to King David. Uh, you must understand that. That's critically important. And what I mean by that is that King Saul and King David have this complement uh, relationship. Whatever King Saul does, King David has a comparison or contrasting event. And, and that's critical information. Nowhere else is this more evident than the Witch of Endor incident for Saul and the Uriah Bathsheba event or incident as well of David. Those two fit together amazingly. And that's what I'm going to repeat right now to make sure that gets in the record. So I hope everything's working this time because we couldn't do it two of them three times, TJ, or we would have to deal with the fall out for that. Okay, it all seems to start with the woman. If you remember, I have the witch of Endor over here for Saul and over here for David. Uh, I have Bathsheba. Okay, so it all starts with a woman. And you know that in Scripture, women have uh, a typified, or they are ty- they are typical of certain entities. One of those entities is what? A, a nation. Uh, they're also typical or symbols of um, the church, for example, a woman, um, you'll see in Revelation that a woman depicts Israel. Uh, the church is called a bride. Uh, all over the New Testament, you see symbols of women as the church. Um, the, women also are what in Revelation? A woman is what? She is the great harlot that sits. Uh, so again, a religious and ecclesiastical Babylon as well. So you see churches uh, or pagan religion or nations with women. So the first thing I ask, of course, is, is that happening here? Is this witch of Endor represents somebody? Uh, this woman who has become a pagan and who runs into the king of Israel and is affected dramatically by it. It sees the coming of Samuel and is affected by it. And here's another woman that is uh, um, taken Does she represent a nation, uh, a church, uh, Israel, ecclesiastical Babylon, or anything of of the sort? Okay, so it all starts with that. I start with a woman and a woman on both sides, and then I get this adultery that shows up because Saul is guilty of adultery when he goes to see a pagan witch, and that is clearly adultery in Scripture. And David, of course, takes her 
for himself. Um, and so I have adultery here, but I really have rape and I have murder as well over here. And so uh, the only things that, and Amanda said to make sure I draw circles and do connecting things. So I'll try to do that. But what's important is you see this adultery issue in both. And then C, I have witnesses on both sides, right? On both sides, I have witnesses. Over here, David has witnesses everywhere. He has messengers that actually go with him, or don't go with him, I'm sorry, that go and take Bathsheba and bring her to him. And Saul has witnesses, two men that go with him. And so... um to Saul, the two men bring Saul to the witch. In David's case, uh, the messengers bring the woman to, to David. So, And then Saul knew all about this uh, woman. He knew her. He knew she was there at all times. And he uh, gives this facade of saying, Hey, where can we find a, a woman who happens to be a medium that we could consult? How did he know it was a woman? He knew exactly where she was. Uh, and I think that is evident in the text. And David also, he asks and inquires about Bathsheba, but he knew all along. He'd been scoping her out from the rooftop, right? Crawling around up there, 50-year-old man, looking at maybe a 16, 15-year-old girl. That's about all I need to say about that again. Now, as soon as this woman of Endor sees uh, Saul, she's in trouble, isn't she? Because what does Saul do? He's responsible to execute uh, the witch of Endor as soon as he comes. So she's under penalty of death. And as soon as David rapes and takes uh, Bathsheba at that very moment, she also is under a penalty of death. The woman of Endor is under penalty of death for witchcraft. That is Leviticus. That's Leviticus 20.27, and she is at the mercy of Saul, and a snare is set for her. Because if she says, listen, I'm not going to do this, then she is disobeying him, and she is under tremendous pressure. And if she admits that she is a medium, then she's also immediately killed. So she is in a snare. How does she extricate herself out of that? <coughs> she... She's at the mercy of Saul, and Bathsheba is taken by David's messengers, and she is also at the mercy of David. What does she do? Refuse the king? She's dead. If she's taken by the king, she's what? Dead. She's under the penalty of death, Leviticus 20.10 and Deuteronomy 22.22. So a snare is set for both of them. Now, Saul also is under the penalty of death, isn't he? Why is he under the penalty of death? Why is Saul under penalty of death? Because he is consulting a pagan medium. That's witchcraft. That's first, uh, I'm sorry, again is Leviticus. And David is under penalty of death as well. How come? Because he is raping and killing and murdering. Lost my place here for when I get back to it. So both of them are under penalty of death. So let's repeat it really fast. We start out with a woman of each. We have adultery in both. We have witnesses in both. Both of them knew ahead of time what it was that they were. They knew who the woman was, and they had their plan all laid out. They both are under penalty of death for doing it. They both understand that perfectly. I believe that's the case. 
Saul knew that about himself. David knew that about himself. And they each put the woman under penalty of death in a snare that she couldn't get out of. (coughs) I think that's part of the plan. Okay? And Saul begins his descent into grave sin with this secret plan. E-F-G. Secret plan. And, of course, David has the same similar secret plan. They both have this little clever, no one's going to catch me thing, even though they took witnesses. Now, I am not doing this for you, am I? So you can't complain about my handwriting. Actually, I can just kind of pretend to be handwriting, can't I? Because you've seen it all before, haven't you? Okay. I love the, the blank stares that I get. I really, they have really cool technology now where I can film the audience. And I could go home with that and, and just, just enjoy it a great deal. Uh, so Saul begins his descent into grave sin with what he thought was, why do I say that? Saul thinks he's got a what? He thinks he's got a, Secret. Does he have a secret? David thinks, oh, no one's going to catch me. I'm going to hide up here on the roof. No one's going to see me. The The whole palace saw him. But worse than that, who really saw him? God sees you. What, what, are you crazy? Do you really think that you live in a place where you can have a secret? A secret anything? Get that out of your head. You have no secrets. At least say, I am, once you realize you have no secrets, that, that God, probably half the city of Anchorage is a small town, knows about you. But if you don't believe that, we're just all friendly. We're all just nice to you, pretending that we don't know. That's what I tell my kids. I am fooled by you. I promise. You have fooled me again. But at least if you, if you want to think you have fooled everybody in this small town, which you haven't, understand that you have not fooled God and you will never fool God. And what should that make you do? Yeah, get out your mirror, baby. Start writing. There are none righteous. There are none who seeks after good. Well, that's interesting. There's none who seeks after good. Where's good? Um... There is none who does good, no, not one. There is none who seeks after God. There is none who seeks after good. Where's good? Where do I go to find good? God. Oh, God is what? Good. Sorry. I'm digressing again. How can you call someone good and evil? That is that is not possible. If he has evil in him, can he be good? No. The definition of good is what? Yeah, no evil. No sin. And so if you are the creator of evil, what must you have inside you? Because before you create it, what must you do with it? You must conceive it, right? So therefore you have the conception of evil inside the mind of God before He creates it. Creation is a is a uh, is is uh, in order is behind 
the concept and the perception of it. So you just put evil inside of good. And as soon as you have done that, how can it be good? It cannot be good. He would never call himself good. Because why? He didn't lie. Well, he would lie if he was evil. What a mess you're in doctrinally now. Why would you even try this? What's wrong with you? Boy, I'm going to get some nasty... No, no, that's not true. They don't even know I exist. (coughs) Okay, I left off at secret plan. Saul promises the witch (coughs) to get her out of the snare. He invokes God. He says, by the Lord, no harm would come to her. Okay? And so that's how he does it. David doesn't do anything of the sort. Uriah has to die in order for Bathsheba to be saved so that no harm would come to her. So Saul promises by the Lord that no harm would come to her. Uh, and Uriah, of course, is the reason no harm would come to Bathsheba. But no harm comes to both. I'm not going to write that because i watch my time really fast now. Saul says to the witch, no punishment, no death shall come upon you for this thing. And Uriah says to David, as you live, as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Saul did evil before the Lord, 1 Samuel 15, 19, 2 Samuel 28, 18. David's thing is also called evil before the Lord, 2 Samuel 11.27. The prophet Samuel is sent to Saul, if you remember now. Uh, he is sent to Saul. He comes out um, disembodied, and he comes with a rebuke for Saul. Why have you done this? And he also comes with a prophecy. What does the prophecy for Saul say? Saul's going to die physically. A prophet Nathan Nathan is sent to David. And Nathan comes with a parable that is a rebuke. And he also comes with a prophecy of death. So both of them have a prophet come to them. Both of them have a prophecy of death. In David's case, it is not David that dies. But in Saul's case, it is Saul and his sons that die. But in David's case, it is also his sons that die. Does that make sense? I hope it does. If you read the text, you'll see it. Saul's anointing as king is discussed by Samuel, and David's anointing as king is also discussed, 2 Samuel 12:7. Saul is reminded of David, 1 Samuel 28:17. David is reminded of Saul, 2 Samuel 12:7. Saul lies and rejects the commandments of God, 1 Samuel 15:23. David lies and despises the commandment of God, 2 Samuel 12:9. Saul is told that he will shortly die physically. David is told that he will live. So one prophet says, Saul, you'll die. The other prophet says, David, you'll live. In David's case, the child born. Let me write that on the board. I'll just put it anyway. The child born will die. And that is obvious who the child born is, isn't it? That is a picture of Christ. Saul's going to die. David is told he will live and the child will, the child born will die in David's place. Saul falls to the ground and refuses to eat and David falls to the ground and refuses to eat. Saul is told his sons will die. David is told his sons will die. 
Saul arose and ate eventually, and David arises and eats eventually. Saul arose to go to eat, to go out and die in battle obediently with his two men that were with him and his sons. And David arose, but he didn't go out to battle. He didn't arise to die. He stayed behind, and Uriah goes in his place. Two things are in David's place all of a sudden. The child born and Uriah. Uriah obediently goes to his death. Saul also goes to his death with how many guys left with him? Two guys. I hope you pick that up. The witch, after seeing Samuel, is so freaked out, she runs around, gets a fatted calf, slays it, gets unleavened bread, and demands it Saul eats it. So Saul eats a fatted calf and unleavened bread. Good for Saul. Yea, for the witch. And in David's case, the little ewe lamb, Bathsheba, is slain and eaten. Who ate the little ewe lamb in the parable? The rich evil man did. David is that man, right? So if you wish, there's your... There's your uh, there's your rape taken. It's not Bathsheba involved in this at all. She is taken like a little ewe lamb and ravished and eaten by David. Saul will be with Samuel. David will go to the child born. How's that for good news? That's good news. An Amalekite comes up to, and says he killed Saul and David kills that Amalekite. And I believe the witch of Endor is honored in Scripture. That's that fatted calf, unleavened bread, and the urging of Saul to eat. And Bathsheba is honored in Scripture. She is the birth mother of the child born, which is a type of Christ, and Solomon, who is a type of Christ. One is the uh, Messiah ben David. The other is the, I'm sorry, Messiah ben Joseph. The other is the Messiah ben David. If you don't know what that means, that means the suffering uh, Messiah and the uh, King Messiah aspect. The uh, the Israelites understand that there are two concepts. They think there are two separate messiahs, but that really is one messiah um, with both characteristics: uh, suffering and death and sacrifice and substitution and king. Okay, and I appreciate your patience uh, in enduring that again. It is a very important part of the book of Samuel. Uh, it's that kind of thing is second only to the Christology or the Christ, or the uh, typology of Christ, which is by far the most important, obviously. But this this Saul David thing really important to you, and to have it missing in any study of First and Second Samuel for any reason would be neglectful and unacceptable on my part. So I hope you understand why I did that. And perhaps while I was repeating most of that you were considering the most obvious of the obvious questions. You see, if Saul's greatest failures, if this is Saul's greatest failure, and it may not be, you may not think it is, but if you think that's Saul's greatest failure, is this David's greatest failure? If you think Saul's greatest failure was... The Witch of Endor. Okay, we'll make our list here. And you're thinking, how does this tie into the oxen? Isn't that what you're thinking? I hope so. If Saul, if this, is this a failure? Would we call the Witch of Endor number one failure? 
What would be number two failure for Saul? He didn't kill Agag, did he? Okay. Hey, would you say number one? We'll call it Saul here. David here. Number one, would that be? Would Agag be on the list? Oh, maybe. He, he gets in a lot of trouble for not doing that, doesn't he? He loses his kingdom over it. I'd say that's a pretty big failure. Kingship, sorry. What's the number one failure for David? Bathsheba, rape and murder, that's pretty bad, isn't it? His sons all die because of it. So we'll go ahead we'll say Uriah, Bathsheba. What would be number two? Census. Oh, really good. Yay for the front row. The census without the blood money, right? How about Saul? What, what else does he do? do he, uh, he, he kills somebody. Who does he kill? He kills the Gibeon, right? There's got to be a compliment over here. What would it be? You see, if Saul's greatest failures were the sparing of Agag, the killing of the Gibeonites, and the witch of Endor, and if, and I'm saying if, if David's greatest failures were Uriah, Bathsheba, the census, and the sparing, see, I've got to have a sparing, don't I? I got to, let me do it. Let me make Amanda happy. Look, Amanda. Which goes to Bathsheba, Uriah. Kills Gibeonites, goes to census without the atonement money. Oh, very good, very good. Out of the second row comes Absalom. Would that be Absalom equal to Agag, I'm going to make the case it was. I'm going to say, if Saul's, to repeat this for those who listen along, if Saul's greatest failures were the sparing of Agag, the killing of the Gibeonites, and the witch of Endor, and if David's greatest failures were Uriah Bathsheba, the sparing of Absalom, and the census without the blood, because that's what that is, the census counting people without blood. In other words, uh, that is a doctrine of salvation by the blood of Christ, um, being violated by David knowingly. And notice, if those are the cases, if those are the three greatest failures of both, and notice if Samuel killed, I'm sorry, notice that Samuel killed Agag because Saul refused to, so Samuel comes out and takes a sword to him. And notice that David says Absalom is not to be touched, even though Absalom is trying to destroy the nation of Israel in the sense of trying to kill the shepherd king. And who kills Absalom? Throws spears at him, right? Joab does. And if one concedes all of that, the aforementioned to be the case, and if being the operative condition, then what do I have here? I have the greatest failures all lining up. Would you agree? See the trap that I have set for you. If you accept that, and a few people don't, too bad for them. But they don't. But if those are the failures and the failures line up, then what is the obvious, most obvious question in what we're doing today? You can do this. If the failures line up, then what has to line up? 
the successes have to line up. What's the number one success of Saul? Number one success of Saul. If you're going to talk about King Saul and his greatest success, what are you going to say? The Spirit of God comes over him and he does what? He tears an ox into pieces and he saves Jabesh Gilead from Nahash, doesn't he? And that is an incredible story and he is greatly honored for that. Right? Okay. That's got to connect to something that David did. What's it connect to? What is the greatest success for the shepherd king David? Goliath. Very good. You don't need me anymore. Goliath, watch Amanda. Over here. Make her watch. Pull her hair. Okay. Oxen is connected to Goliath. There. How am I doing? Am I doing better? Thank you. If you think I have any authority here, go ask Lindsay and Amanda. You'll find out how bad it's going for me. See? How does the greatest success then line up with the greatest success? Saul's and David's. Saul cut up the oxen, a supernatural event (coughs) (coughs) that precedes the destruction of Nahash and the Ammonite army and the salvation of Jabesh, 1 Samuel 11. We just covered it, right? You thought this wouldn't connect today, didn't you? And David, how, how, how little confidence you have in me. And David cutting the head off of Goliath. That is also a supernatural event, right? Uh, And that precedes the defeat and the routing and the chasing down of the Philistine army and the subsequent burying of Goliath's severed severed head outside of Jerusalem, as you know, in Golgotha, or you might say uh, incorrectly, Golgotha, the place of Goliath's skull. And those two must fit together somehow. So how do they do so? How is it that the sending of oxen by messengers throughout Israel uh, resulting in fear of the Lord, Israel rising up as one, how does that fit with the decapitation of Goliath? How do both of those connect to Judges 19? And you should have no difficulty putting all of that together. It's a piece of pie, easy as cake. And because I try to be so helpful to you, you have three minutes, 26 seconds. No, three but 21 seconds to go. Thank you. No fair hiding in the back room pretending you're listening. You have to suffer with the rest of them. Makes me think you're learning something. The key of all of this is the, it, it, to this solution between those two is fear of the Lord. And how coincidental that we are confronted with that at Romans 3. Think about what happened to Judges 19. Actually, Judges 20. The Ark of the Covenant was there. It was there, physically there. God spoke aloud three times. He said, Judas first, go up against him, and go up tomorrow, I will deliver them into your hands. How loud do you think he talked? I submit everybody heard him. He likes being heard. And yet the sons of Belial and the tribe of Benjamin continued to fight. They had no fear. In fact, they were overconfident, weren't they? And Jabesh Gilead sent no one to take the oath. And at 1 Samuel 11, the twelve pieces that, uh, that he cuts uh, in, of that oxen caused the fear of the Lord to fall on all of Israel. 
And at 1 Samuel 17, Goliath defied the living God. And Israel was dreadfully afraid, it says, greatly afraid, dismayed. As with Nahash, Goliath offered a deal, another one of these servant deals, probably another one of these cut-out-your-eyes-amputate-your-arm deals. And so Agag, killer of women and children, Goliath, defying God, bringing reproach on Israel in the same manner as Nahash, Goliath cursing David, Israel curses God himself. How coincidental that Goliath's mouth is full of cursing and bitterness because he represents another man who will also blaspheme and curse with a bitter mouth. Who is that? That's the Antichrist, the giant of a man that cannot be defeated, cursing God, will be slain by the shepherd king, and all the world will know that the true God is the God of Israel. By the way, that's exactly what David says when he kills Goliath. All the world will know that the God of Israel is the true God. Okay, finally, or lastly, and yes, I'm quite aware that finally and lastly are the two most favorite words here at Cliffside. Notice how the Apostle Paul responds to all of this. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And now we know that whatever the law says, whatever the law says, when the law says what it says, every mouth is stopped. Goliath's mouth is stopped. The sons of Belial are stopped. Satan is stopped. The Benjamites are stopped. Nahash is stopped from bringing reproach on God. Who, by the way, brings the most reproach on God today? I've been reading from their website. They're not the most. It's that monistic philosophy. It is those who believe there is no God. They're bringing reproach on God. The law is going to stop that. It says so. Every mouth will be shut up. The law does that. So we should ask some questions really fast. Where do laws come from? Where do laws originate from? Who made the laws? See, the question isn't who made God. It's why did God make the laws? What is the difference between moral law, scientific law, national law, natural law, sorry, and human law? There's a universal aspect to law. What I mean by that is throughout the created order, space, energy, matter, time, everything is governed by rules, order, and purpose, or what we will call law. Everything. Everything and everyone is controlled. Do you not know that about yourself? What's controlling you? Right now you're sitting in a chair. You can't get up. What's keeping you down? Mean old Mr. Gravity. It's a law. And law is everywhere. So the question becomes, why is law so ubiquitous? The ubiquity of law, which means that law is omnipresent. It's a characteristic of law to be omnipresent. That should make you go, wow, that's really special. Law is under uh, omnipresent. Understanding the ubiquity of law, which means that law is everywhere. It, it, it's Everything is is governed by rules and order and purpose. Once you understand the ubiquity of law, you solve many things 
uh, in Scripture and many things in philosophy. It certainly proves something when you know that law has control in the sense that law is, is everywhere and, under, and has all this rule and order to it. You certainly know now that you are a living soul. It proves substance dualism. It may not make sense to you today, but it will, I hope, in the, in the coming weeks. It proves your soul survives the physical death of your body. Bill made a great comment today. Well, who, what do you talk about? You're in front of a person dying. What do you say to them? You say, how about this law that's ubiquitous? The ubiquity of law. Where does law come from? Why do you need to know about law? It says all mouths are going to be stopped. All reproach will end. And people will be saved by grace. When they understand law, when they understand how overwhelming and everywhere and everything controlled and put in the order and rules, somebody likes rules and order. The ubiquity of law stops all mouths and brings the knowledge of sin and guilt to all the world. It explains why Jesus Christ is waiting, why he goes in order. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, is the law maker. He's also the law giver. It is not Moses. Moses is merely the instrument of the law maker, law giver. No flesh is saved by law. Why not? You have to know that. You have to know why no flesh is saved by law. The purpose of law is not to save anybody. What is the purpose of law? To shut people up. That's right. That's what it's about. So, if you want to go around making people shut up, then learn the ubiquity of law, which we will do in the coming weeks. Let's rise and be dismissed. How great is our God on page 45.